Good afternoon and welcome to the University of Chicago Community Health Focus Hour brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine. I'm Dr. Dorian Miller, your doctor on call, and we are here to bring you information around health concerns that are specific to our community. This is a live show, and please give us a call today at 773-591-1690. That's WVON AM Talk of Chicago. Now, the format that we're using today, I'm a little bit lonely here in the studio, but I've got Titus here, my engineer, who's staying strong over in the booth across the way because we are physically distancing, but we are socially embracing our new circumstances. But we have two great guests that are on the line today. We're going to be talking about some very sensitive health concerns in our community. Again, we are very interested in hearing from you, and so please give us a call at 773-591-1690. That's WVON-AM, the talk of Chicago. Our topic for discussion today is the impact of COVID-19 on the LGBTQ community and also the importance of gender diversity. This is a topic that we usually tackle in terms of looking at LGBTQ issues during Pride Month, which is during the month of June, something that we celebrate and embrace in our community. But we've also been struck by quite a few things that are traumatizing our community at this time. We've had a number of people who have been impacted by COVID-19 or the coronavirus, and you may remember me talking about this in our show last month. But also, um, I think that there are some specific issues that we would like to cover around this um, as it pertains to the LGBTQ community, and also the issue of the importance of gender diversity. And so on the phone, because we are physically distancing, although we are socially engaging, I've got two great guests that are on the line. My first guest is Anna Deshawn, who's the founder and CEO of E3 Radio. Anna, how are you? Doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's good to talk with you again. And my next guest is... Joel Jackson, who is the Assistant Director of Diversity and Inclusion Training at the Urban Health Initiative in our Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity Department at UChicago Medicine. Joel, how are you today? I'm doing well, Dr. Miller. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. As I said, feeling a little bit lonely in the booth today, but I'm so glad that you have both been able to join us over the phone. So for both Joel and Anna, I'm going to ask you that in the background, if you're not speaking, to mute your phones because we were getting just a little bit of feedback going on. Thank you. So I am going to start this question first, and I'm going to start this question actually with Anna, and then I'm going to move on to Joel. The first question is, what concerns are you hearing regarding the impact of the coronavirus or COVID-19 on the LGBTQ community? So, Anna, if you would please. Sure. First off, I think that COVID has, whenever anything like this happens, when there's a pandemic, when there's a virus, when there's an epidemic, we know that communities who are impoverished communities that are underserved will always be hit and affected at a greater rate than anyone else. And so when we talk about black and brown LGBTQ folks in particular, we are suffering. It is hard out here. People are not only being affected by this, whether they are the ones who have had to fight the virus or they have friends or community or chosen family, right, who's having to fight this virus, but they're also doing it in communities that don't have the clinics, people who don't have, you know, insurance, people who are under or not employed at all right now, right? I mean, there's just so many factors impacting our community that it is extremely hard right now. People have, it's tough. And then on top of all of it, right, we're dealing with political unrest and rightfully so. And, you know, I think there's just 
there's so many things happening at one time that it's just impacting our communities greatly. You know, and I can really hear the grief and the distress in your voice in terms of having these multiple traumas that are being laid on our community. Joel, what are you seeing and what are you hearing? Thank you, Dr. Miller. Very similar to what Anna just said. And um, I want to just sort of speak to some statistics about the LGBTQ community. You know, there are about 14 million LGBTQ adults and about 2 million LGBTQ youth in the United States. And more than 5 million work in jobs that are more likely to be impacted by COVID-19, which includes working in restaurants, food services, hospitals, elementary schools, high schools, middle schools, higher education, and retail industries. You know, and this makes up about 40% of all industries where LGBTQ people work. You know, 15% in restaurants, 7.5% hospitals, 7% in education, about 7% adults in college and universities, and 4% they work in retail. And so with these five industries, for comparison, only make up about 22% of the industries where people who are not LGBTQ work, right? And so economically speaking, people, LGBTQ people work in highly affected industries. Wow, that sounds like quite almost, at least for some professions, quite a wipeout in terms of economic issues. I was looking at some other statistics, according to the Human Rights Campaign Foundation, that one in 10 LGBTQ people are unemployed and are more likely to live in poverty than non-LGBTQ. Is that something that you've come across in your statistics as well, Joel? Yeah, absolutely. You know, statistically speaking, LGBTQ people are poorer, you know. Let's see, uh, there's nearly one in 10 LGBTQ people who are unemployed and are more likely to live in poverty than straight and cisgender people, meaning that, you know, LGBTQ people, LGBTQ people cannot always afford the health care that they need or afford to engage in preventative health care measures. So, Anna, and your role as the founder of E3 Radio, have you been hearing about these types of issues? And also, well, because I'm a, a doctor and this is about health and well-being, I want to bring it back to some of the issues around access to care. Tell me what you're hearing from the people who listen to E3 Radio. Sure. So all week, we've this particular week, we've been doing a series called Stopping the Music, where we've had various guests come on and our people come on just to talk and vent and listen. And uh, one of our episodes was specifically talking about self-care, mental health care, and what people are doing right now to try to just take care of themselves, to remain sane. And it's difficult to even find services, right, that are able to accommodate just with because people don't have any money. <laughs> I'm trying to make it sound better, but there's nothing, there's no better way to say it. People have a lack of funds out here and so when they're trying to find services or finding some resources it's extremely hard i was tuned into howard brown health did a great session um last week that shannon parker parker moderated and the trans life project with reina ortiz you know was talking about how they have been trying their best to redirect services how there aren't enough beds how they're trying to get people the need to meet their needs and it's just been extremely hard because of covid but also because of the uprising right places are not open 
there's a lot of places that aren't servicing folks right now. And so what we've been hearing is that people are searching for community and searching for resources. And so I think that, you know, Joel, I think you're probably great at this, is having a list of those resources available to folks because people just don't know where to go. Very important information. And we're going to come back to the issue of being able to connect people to resources a little bit later in the show, but I wanted to take a few minutes to unpack things. You know, it's sometimes people laugh and they think about being in quarantine and binge watching on whatever shows that they happen to stream. But um, I think that the issues that uh, both you and Joel are talking about are the things that come to the, the basic necessities of people being able to survive. And that is that they need to have a job, that they need to have people in their lives who are caring about them, and also that they need to have people in their lives that are providing them with the mental health resources and support. Because for some of us that are a little bit older, given all of the things that are taking place in uh, many of the protests, this kind of thing can be triggering. Any comment about that? Absolutely. I think this kind of thing is definitely triggering, and it's, it's devastating, especially for LGBTQ people of color. You know, when COVID first happened and then we were forced to sort of physically distance and a lot of places closed, I started to get a lot of phone calls because I still work somewhat with the Chicago Center for HIV Elimination, which serves a lot of LGBTQ youth of color. And there are still uh, services available through that organization, but just not, well, on-site services have been limited, right? And so as a lot of young people and a lot of LGBTQ people of color have been forced to be laid off or have lost their jobs, we're seeking assistance with even filing for unemployment. You know, and I was receiving phone calls about people who were needing to access computers because they usually go to some of these centers to access computers and things like that. And so it helped them navigate on how to contact unemployment through the phone line. But then there's delays with that, you know. And so it's been a lot of um, struggle and challenges with people being able to just meet their minimum basic needs. And, you know, often in the LGBTQ community of color, we have families of choice, right, where... You know, we have houses, if you will. That's what we kind of call them. If you think of, like, fraternities and sororities, we call them houses. You know, it's not necessarily a physical place where people stay, but it's like a kinship network. And we tend to rely on each other for support, you know. But this need to social distance has really limited our ability to even access each other, you know. And then there's also exposure um, concerns, you know, of, of allowing too many people to come even, for example, into my home. So, yes, it's very devastating to the to the LGBTQ community, specifically community of color. Very important point that you're making. And so when we get to the segment a little bit later in the show, in terms of providing people with resources with telephone numbers, I'm going to ask you for that information, particularly for the Chicago Center for HIV Elimination. I want to unpack another issue, and I think that, Joel, you were getting to it in your comments just a moment ago, and I'm going to turn this to Anna and then back to you, Joel is the issue of meeting basic needs. We know that LGBTQ youth are more likely than cisgender youth to experience homelessness and unstable housing. How has COVID impacted this issue? Go to you, Anna, first, and then Joel. Tragic, really, right? So um, when I talk about the Trans Life Project, you all can look that up with Raina Ortiz. She was specifically talking about how we already know there aren't enough beds in the city of Chicago for the number of homeless or those experiencing housing instability. Um, There already aren't enough beds. But when we talk about people having to choose whether or not they stay in a home that is not safe, right, to sort of guard against COVID, 
right? Or am I going to have to leave this place that's not safe to go somewhere else that might not that might not be safe either, or who might not have a bed just so I'm not in this house, you know, with people who don't support me and support who I am. It is a terrible decision to have to make, and and it's one that has caused lots of people to be in further unstable situations, right? To not have any footing to stand on, and it really is a crisis in regards to how we support the most marginalized of our communities. And I think that that is truly where not only need to continue to focus, but continue to strive for are not are the youth that are queer and trans who need somewhere safe to be. And we have still have not solved the matter of finding and having enough beds in the city for those who have nowhere to go. Now, I remember it just exasperates that. Uh, thanks so much, Anna. You know, I remember a few years ago having uh, Raina Ortiz on the show and talking with Raina about some of these challenges in, in being trans. And one of the things that I think we'd mentioned was the the capacity of the night ministry and having that particular program as being available, but certainly in, not adequate in terms of the number of people served. Is that correct? A hundred percent correct. Okay. Right. And there's not enough night ministry. There are just not enough beds. Um, you know, I think at one point the group Pride Action Tank, right, we're looking, we're going through and doing the Tiny Homes Project, right, an initiative to sort of spearhead this idea that tiny homes can totally be a feasible way, a feasible option, right, to have more beds in the city. You know, I think we really do need to think creatively and think out of the box as to how we can solve the overall issue of housing instability and homelessness in the city of Chicago, especially with LGBTQ youth, those who have been kicked out of their homes, those who have been turned away from people who are supposed to love them the most. Absolutely critical issue. We're coming up on our break right now. You're listening to the Community Health Focus Hour brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine. Please give us a call at 773-591-1690. That's WVON-AM, the talk of Chicago. Welcome back to the second segment of the Community Health Focus Hour brought to you by the University of Chicago Medicine's Urban Health Initiative. This is a live show. I'm in studio by myself this afternoon, but I've got two great guests that are on the line that are available and listening and willing to answer questions. And so if you'd like, please give us a call at 773-591-1690. That's WVON-AM, the talk of Chicago. Joel, Anna, I'd like to switch gears a little bit right now because I think that for some of our listeners that they may need a little bit of level setting in terms of the kinds of issues that are coming up in the LGBT community, particularly around definitions of diversity and specifically around gender diversity. And so I'd like to do, at least in this segment, a little bit of level setting so that hopefully people who are hearing terms around why is it so important to use proper pronouns and what exists around those, why do people select those pronouns, I think is important. And also, Um, the issue of why it's important to both be educated about this area and also the issue of collecting data. So I'm going to start with you for just a moment, Joel, and ask this question, and and I'll move on to you. What does it mean to be gender diverse? Okay, thank you. So um, gender diversity really 
so let me let me first explain by saying this. There's a difference between sex and gender. You know, to explain it plainly, I often say that sex is my biology, my anatomy. That's what's between my legs, right? Well, gender is between my ears. Gender is how I see myself as a man, as a woman, or as a transgender individual, or indeed any other gender identity that uh, fits who I who I am, right? And so that allows for a lot of diversity when it comes to gender. And the usage of pronouns is very important for inclusion purposes. You know, Anna just spoke about marginalized communities and meeting the needs of the most marginalized. Well, if we can work from margin to center, then everyone's needs will be met. So if we can be inclusive, especially as hospitals are going to begin and health centers are going to begin collecting SOGI data, which is sexual orientation and gender identity, because this helps with doing um, research and it helps with addressing disparities that are particularly affecting the LGBTQ community. But if we don't collect that data in the first place, then how can we stratify it based on sexual orientation and gender identity in order for it to inform us on better service delivery? Ah, so it's not just about what people want to be called, but it's also about being able to provide them with the services that are needed that are specific to them. Um, Very important information. Anna, can you share a little bit of that from your perspective and what you're seeing in your community? Absolutely. It's about being seen, right? So I think that so often we want everything to be in a nice box and makes everyone feel great and whatever people call quote-unquote normal. But I think why people have such challenges around gender, and I appreciate Joel breaking down the difference between sex and gender. The, people, the reason people have such a challenge around that, I think, is because we have been indoctrinated into this toxic masculinity situation where I think people have a real challenge seeing effeminate men and having, and, it, and, it, and that needs to be challenged, right? That internal internal racism that we have within ourselves in regards to how we view black men and how black men need to be seen, right? And then when we start to have that conversation, then we have to start talking about, well, when I see a masculine of center woman, you know, how does that make me feel? So as, as someone who identifies as queer and masculine of center, you know, my life and what I have experienced doesn't come close to what I think effeminate men have experienced, black men have experienced in the community. And I tell a story when I was in grammar school, right, I was on the basketball team. I had a, you know, people, I never experienced any discrimination in that way. I never experienced any hatred in that way. But I had a classmate who, we never used the language of being gay, but he was effeminate, right? And he always had a knife underneath his shoe. I never felt the need to do that. And I think that when we begin to really, we have to do the work to have the conversations around why does that make you feel uncomfortable? What about your masculinity makes Why do you have to make someone else feel like they're not masculine enough? And so gender is vast. It has a huge spectrum. It's not black or white. It doesn't have to be black or white. And I think once we begin to have those conversations and wrap your head around the fact that it's it's not a binary thing, it's not just man and woman. Absolutely not. God created absolutely each and every one of us. And I think that if we believe that God makes no mistakes, Right. If we're coming from that place, then all the identities and the beautiful spectrums that make up, you know, this rainbow and it's crazy because I haven't even thought about Pride Month at all yet. (laughs) But when we start to think about that, I think in that way, I think we can have a new lens on how we look and appreciate and approach gender and these conversations in our community. You know, one of the things that I'm struck by in this conversation and just, you know, when I open 
my comments by saying that June is Pride Month and that things are going to change about Pride celebrations because of what we're going through is that we are fixed upon the immediate of what's going on around us and thinking about those basic issues of, of survival. And so it's one of the reasons why I wanted to at least open up our conversation a little bit to talk about a little bit more of these issues and framing them. Joel, Anna used a term that you may or may not be familiar with, um, and if you are familiar with the issue of toxic masculinity and how this comes into play, I'd like for you to perhaps in your role, because I've been one of the people that's been trained by you in diversity and inclusion, to unpack that a little bit and how it comes to play in terms of our relationships with one another. Absolutely. So the way I think about it in terms of toxic masculinity, I think about, you know, those expectations of what it means to act like a man, right? Being strong and stoic, you know, and not showing emotion, not not being able to be human, essentially, not not crying and things like that. You know, it makes me think of all of the things that are happening today, not just COVID-19, but all of the, the civil unrest and the police brutality and such, right? And I participated in a peaceful interfaith march this past Tuesday that we marched down MLK Drive all the way down to Washington Park here in Chicago. And it was actually very well organized, and it was actually very diverse, religiously diverse and um, visibly diverse in terms of race and everything. And I felt energized after participating in that march. But when I got home, I logged on the social media, and one of my friends, who's also he's a black gay man, he posted and said that I'm not going to participate in any movement until all black lives matter after watching that video. And so then I had to figure out what was this video that was, you know, that everyone was talking about that I hadn't seen yet. And it's a video of a trans woman of color being jumped on and beaten by a group of African-American men. At least that's what I presume them to be, African-American men, you know. And all of this, I have to say, is a result of this toxic masculinity, this, this white supremacy that we're trying to live through because, as a cisgender, heterosexual, African-American man, if I'm starting to feel a loss of power, then it may not necessarily be at the forefront of my mind. Subconsciously, it may make me feel better to make someone else feel powerless, right? And so then that creates all of this violence, even within communities of color, towards LGBTQ individuals. I was happy, though, at the march when someone spoke, and they didn't just say Black Lives Matter. They said that if you are gay and black, you matter. They said if you are trans and black, you matter. And so they were trying to be very inclusive, and they're creating more visibility and inclusion. At the same time, this violence is still happening, and a lot of it is because of this toxic masculinity. You know, as I, I think about this, the, the thing, person that popped into my head that many people may not be aware of is the role of Bayard Rustin and his role in the civil rights movement and putting himself literally out there in terms of promoting issues amongst African-Americans, but being um, ostracized and in many ways um, having to hide his sexual orientation because of the time in which he came about. Yes, absolutely. If you don't mind me speaking a little bit more about Bayard Rustin, because he's one of our ancestors whom which I draw a lot of energy from, especially as a gay black man who's also an activist, right? Bayard Rustin helped to organize the, the March on Washington, you know, for civil rights. And he was actually asked to not be a part of it, 
because of the people outing him as being a gay man, and he was also a Quaker. But when he was removed from the movement, they were disorganized, and they had a hard time pulling it together, so they had to ask him to come back. And so he came back, and he helped to, to initiate the movement and was very instrumental in making it happen. He was also the person that brought the whole theory of nonviolent conflict resolution after following the principles taught by Gandhi into the movement, right? And even still today, he's often erased from that monumental moment in our history because he is a or was a gay black man. Very important information in our history for us to know. And there may be those of us who are a little bit older and remember his role in the civil rights movement. But I think that taking the opportunity for you to unpack a little bit about why his role was so extremely essential in helping to move things forward, and particularly in nonviolent fashion, I uh, thank you and appreciate that uh, the lesson that you just shared with us. Anna, the issue that you raised about toxic masculinity and also the protections of us and thinking about us as a people and having the big tent around this, particularly during this time, I think is uh, so incredibly important. What are people talking to you about on E3 Radio in terms of what's going to happen around celebrations at the end of the month? Because usually in Chicago, as you know, we have a large parade that takes place in the Lakeview community that celebrates Pride Month, and this is something that's not going to happen. So what what's going to happen? How are we going to celebrate? How are we going to, to bring about this inclusiveness, particularly at a time in which so many of us have been traumatized by the events of the day? Well, my hope is that we take the lead that L.A. is taking and that we turn, you know, pride back into a protest and take it back to where pride started. And I hope that we keep this momentum going and that instead of, you know, pride parading, that we're pride marching. And I think that that's going to take <laughs> so much of us, black and brown and queer activists, to tell the white gay activists that pride is more than a party, right? To say that this is a time where you need to fight your own racism within your own communities and this is a time for us to stand up and say that, you know, black lives matter, even in the LGBTQ community. Like, if you live in Chicago, you should be very well aware of the treatment of black LGBTQ folks in Boys Town, the inequities, the racism that folks experience there. And so my hope is that, you know, just because we're not parading, that we're still, that we're marching, that we're still protesting, my hope is that this momentum goes absolutely nowhere. I think we already knew we weren't going back to any type of normalcy, right, due to COVID. Our lives will never be what they were before. What I'm also hoping is that with this movement that's happening now, that has been a slow, steady, I think, crescendo to this moment, there have been lots of events leading up to this moment where I feel like that eight minutes and 46 seconds where that cop had his knee on George Floyd's neck, has led us to right now leads us into another, you know, normal where we can begin to really deal with the racism, really begin with the systematic issues that continue to not serve those who live on the margins. So my hope is that we're protesting. My hope is that we're still uprising. My hope is that we're still angry. 
my hope is that we're still channeling that anger to create some real long-lasting change so that when our children and our grandchildren look back on 2020, it can be a point in history where it says, like, after that, these are the things that happened that has made my life better. That is my hope. I'm going to remember the phrase, it's not a party, it's a protest. Thank you so much for that. We have a caller on the line. Caller, are you there? Hello? Yes, are you there? It's Dr. Miller. Can you hear my voice? Yes, we can. Thank you. What's your question or comment? Well, my comment is this. I'm an elder black man, heterosexual black man, and I'm clear that black heterosexual alpha black males have been consistently under attack at least for the last 70 years in Chicago, specifically through the gang structure set up by the University of Chicago as part of the New World Order where homosexuals have been put in front of black people in this city and state and country in a the plan to, in fact, use this pandemic and these riots to create urban insurrection and literally destroy the country and the world in a New World Order. So I'm sitting here listening to compassionate stories about how in Boys Town, where our tax dollars were used to set up a separate place for homosexuals to celebrate and prosper. They have the audacity to discriminate against black male homosexuals. Am I hearing that in this conversation? You know, Harold, I'm going to have you to have the, a response to the question that you're posing um, off the air, because I think that you're raising an important issue, the issue of discrimination about not just about a gender and sexual orientation, but also about race. And so, um, Joel, I'm going to ask you to take that, and then Anna, I'll have you to follow. Um, we've got about a minute before we're going to be going to break, and so actually, Joel, I'll have you to take it, and then Anna will take your uh, response to it right after we come from the break. Joel? Yeah, absolutely. So this makes me think of Kimberly Crenshaw, um, who developed the um, theory of critical race theory and the theory of intersectionality, right? And the fact that we don't just exist in boxes as single identities. And there are oftentimes, as a gay black man, that that I've been, I've felt the need to sort of check my gayness at the door, going into black specific venues, but also felt the need to sort of check my blackness at the door, which is virtually impossible when going into to sort of gay venues, right? You know, and not always feeling wholly accepted for all of who I am. And all of this, like I said earlier, is really because of a lot of this sort of toxic masculinity, this sort of internalized oppression that exists within all of these communities. You know, and in order for us to overcome it, we actually have to continue to be, like Anna said, continue to be angry, continue to have visibility, continue to have these conversations, and try to build relationships across our differences. You know, because with these relationships creates memories, and that's what binds us together for a lifetime, right, in order for us to continue to see the humanity in each other. Thank you so much for that, Joel. We are going to go to a break now. You're listening to the Community Health Focus Hour brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine. Please give us a call at 773-591-1690. That's WVON-AM, the talk of Chicago. Thank you 
so much for listening to us this afternoon. This is the third and final segment of the Community Health Focus Hour brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine. I'm Dr. Dorian Miller, your doctor on call today, and we've been having a wonderful conversation with our guests who are calling in today regarding the impact of COVID-19 on the LGBT community and also the importance of gender diversity, and that's where we were leaving the conversation before we went to break. And so, and I'm going to bring you back into the conversation before before we switch gears around to community resources. You heard the comments from our call-in person just a moment ago, and I'm just wondering what your response is to, to some of the comments that the listener made. Yeah. I mean, I just want to confirm that, yes, that is exactly what's happening in Boys Town, and it happens often. Um, in regards to racism, even within the LGBTQ community. I'm also piggybacking, piggybacking off of what Joel said, is that I'm living at the intersections, right? So that is a very real thing. I was just talking about it on my show this past week, and that there have been certain areas in my life where people want you to check a certain identity. And I'm telling you, I'm not checking any of them. <laughs> All of them are just as important to me as the other. And I also believe that we can walk and chew gum at the same exact time. We can fight, you know, white racist police killing us and we, while at the same time fighting, you know, poverty and crime in our own communities, while also caring about black trans women who are being murdered on the west side of Chicago, whose murders go unsolved, where there is no uprising, right, where there is no anger around that. Right. We can also care about Brianna Taylor, right, who was supposed to be 27 years old yesterday. We can care about all these things at the same exact time and not feel the need to have to choose one oppression over another oppression. Somebody's got it worse than me. I had it worse than you. It's all bad and it's all connected. And I think that when we begin to look at it from that lens, that we are all in this fight together. There is no there should never be any black against brown like my. My well-being is based on everybody's well-being. And I think that we really, really have to change the frame in which we look at these issues because we're all interconnected. And if we choose to try to cipher them off, we're doing everybody a huge injustice. And it's that kind of divisiveness that we are seeing oftentimes that it's demonstrated at different levels of our society. And so if people can be seen as separate, that people can be played off against one another, which is something that is incredibly toxic and destructive. We have two callers that are on the line, and so I'm going to take line two first to our engineer. Um, Lafayette, do you have a question or a comment for our guest today? I actually did. I've um, heard the word trauma mentioned around four times, and I don't think we actually get enough. Uh, I don't actually. Th- I actually think the trauma doesn't get enough attention, or the, the attention that it deserves. And what I mean by that is that there's a concept called weathering that I've been reading about a lot. I'm in a uh, doctoral program. I finish next year, and with that weathering. With the constant pressure that we're under it, with the microaggressions and and just the overt racism, it's like those take a considerable toll on our bodies, on our bodies that aren't. So we need to find out how we can remediate that. Because I was reading one report, and it was talking about how Martin Luther King, when he was killed, the doctor doing the autopsy was actually, actually stated that he was a 39-year-old man with the heart of a 60-year-old, 
and that was due to the constant pressure that he was under. Lafayette, thank you so much for your comment. I think that this issue of weathering or John Henryism, which is another phrase for it, is a very important one. And Joel, I'm going to ask you to address that if you would, please. Absolutely. There are so many different types of trauma that we experience. You know, first is, of course, the historical trauma, you know, that that many of us carry with us even through our bloodstreams when we think about the enslavement of Africans or even the genocide of Native Americans, right? You know, and then there's also the complex traumas that many of us experience that from from having adverse childhood experiences, you know, trauma that has gone unresolved and untreated, or even the civil unrest that we're experiencing today is an example of uh, complex trauma. Right. And then what happened to George Floyd, as many of us saw that video, you know, even though it didn't directly happen to us, that's an example of secondary traumatic stress that we may have experienced just from even watching that video. So trauma is a huge issue for for many of us, and it's compounded the more marginalized that you are. So if you're an LGBTQ person, if you're a person of color, or if you are like me in LGBT within the LGBTQ community and a person of color, then that can really compound the the experience of the traumatic stress that we carry on a regular everyday basis. So how can we sort of treat that for ourselves? Physiologically speaking, the best thing that I can do is find ways to relax my body in order to be able to relax my mind. Right. And when I do that, my body, what I can do is sort of move from a what's called sympathetic dominant nervous system to a parasympathetic dominant nervous system, which is where I can move forward with less of a threat response in a less traumatized manner so that I'm not helping the stress create chronic illnesses within my body. It's very important that we learn how to sort of self-regulate instead of gunning our engines the whole time through our threat responses because that's actually what causes us to to internally age, like what he was saying about Dr. Martin Luther King. But if we can relax and figure out ways to really help each other, listen to each other's stories, that's the way we help people heal from PTSD, give them an opportunity to tell their stories. It's a healing process. We have to turn and reframe things because the environment's not going to change. It's going to remain toxic. So how can we build skills for ourselves and with each other to exist within this toxic environment and still survive. And very important point, Joel. Thank you so much for that. We have another caller on the line. We're going to take Mary. Mary, are you there? Yes, yes, I am, Dr. Miller. Can you hear me? Yes. Great. So thanks for taking my call. This is a great discussion. And, and along the lines of, I think, A lot of times people don't communicate about LGBTQ issues is because they don't know the proper terminology. To be frank, LGBTQ is a bit of a tongue twister. and Sometimes people just leave the Q off because their tongue gets twisted. But there's two things that I hope that our guests can speak to. One is... Because I have many friends who are in the LGBTQ community, I kind of know that the term homosexual is almost feels like a black person today being called colored. And 
it's not that it's completely off base, but there's something about it. So that's the term. And then the term cisgender is another term that people who kind of thought they had it are not quite sure. And then there's the term Latinx, like why are we not Latinas and Latinos? What is Latinx? So those three things kind of get people hung up. And I thought about it when I heard the guests say homosexual, and it just felt like fingers going across a blackboard. Thank so, you so please. much. Thanks, Mary, for your comment. I'm going to ask Anna to address that, and then we're only going to have about three minutes left for the show this afternoon. So, Anna, would you go ahead, please? Sure, yeah. Uh, homosexual definitely feels like colored. That's a great analogy to that word. I don't use that word. I mean, just the same way we don't use heterosexual, it just feels clinical. I think that's another way to put it. Um, Instead of humanizing people, yeah, homosexual is just not it. In regards to cisgender, the whole cisgender piece, yeah, so cisgender, and Joel probably has a better definition. Essentially, um, you're born into the same body, like your sex and your gender align for you, right? And so you're considered to be cis, C-I-S. And so, for example, my father was is born male, and he identifies and loves women. He is considered to be cisgendered. And then Latinx, for me, I use that word because I know a lot of uh, brown LGBTQ folks who um, use that to say, hey, I am everything. Um, don't just put me into a box and sort of just opens up the gender conversation and race and ethnicity conversation. To say Latinx is sort of this all-inclusive term. Joel might have some better, I don't know, clarification there as well. Thanks, Anna. Joel, if you could do that in about 30 seconds, please. Sure. The DSM-3, which is a mental health book, put homosexual in there as as a mental illness. That's why we don't use that anymore. Cisgender is just, like she said, if I identify, if I'm born male and identify as a man or born female and identify as a woman, then I'm cis. So think about the prefix, like she said. And Latinx is just being inclusive of every gender expression within the Latino community, right? And I want to say that it's also important for us to all do our own sort of research and self-education. You know, it's the similar feeling that people of color feel and black people feel when white people come and ask them questions to educate them as if they don't have the skills to be able to educate themselves. And there are a lot of heterosexual or I should say straight individuals who've done a lot of work in this field. And so the resources are there. You can even Google it to find out that information for yourself. Thanks so much, Joel. We're going to allow you both about a minute to give any final advice or information around resources that you would like our listeners to know about. I know we've got a couple of other people that are on the line. I'm so sorry, but we're almost at the top of the hour and we're not going to be able to take your calls today. But I'll start out with you, Anna. Community resources, things that you think people should be aware of, COVID-19. Joel, when we come to you, if you could give the number for the Chicago Center for HIV Elimination. So, Anna, first. So, first up, I'd like to tell folks about Affinity Community Services, which is located on 28th and Wabash and serves Black LGBTQ folks, particularly Black women, and has been doing so for 25 years. That's affinity95.org. I'd also tell people about Brave Space Alliance, who has been feeding trans uh, Black and brown folks and putting money in their pocket and raising funds 
right, to help supplement folks during COVID. And then I'd also tell people about the Trans Life Project. Great. Thank you, Anna. Joel? Yes. So if you want to call the Chicago Center for HIV Elimination, specifically a program called The Village, you can call the front desk. That number is 773-834-2468. And specifically, we have a COVID hotline number that's available from 9 to 5 on weekdays, Monday through Friday. And that number is 708-872-5395. Joel, would you repeat that last number again, please? Sure. 708-872-5395. That's the COVID hotline number. And you can also text it as well. Great. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest for today, Ms. Anna Deshawn, who is the founder and CEO of E3 Radio, and Mr. Joel Jackson, Assistant Director for Inclusion, Diversity, and Training of the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine. In addition, I'd like to thank our guest for being here today, as well as the people who listened and called in. Also would like to thank our executive producer, Ms. Susan Peters. I'd like to thank our segment producer, Ms. Natalie Watson. Titus Williams, our awesome technical producer and engineer. Ms. Latira, who is here and is doing our Facebook Live today. Next week, we're going to be back, and we will have Cedric McCoy hosting, discussing male health, keeping our black fathers alive. And until then, thank you for listening, and be well. The Community Health Focus Hour is brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine.